Fridays are for philanthropy. This is Eva Talks. Our special guest today is Fabiola Veracasa Beckman. You have probably seen her name in the documentary The First Monday in May. She is a successful film producer, an entrepreneur, and a dedicated mom. But her most important work continues to be her dedication to help others. Fabiola, welcome to Eva Talks. You were born in Caracas, Venezuela, and then life took you to New York. How was your upbringing? How was the family environment? Uh, well, uh, I moved to New York when I was two because my parents divorced when I was very, very young. And uh, I, my upbringing in New York, I stayed in New York till I was around 11, maybe 12. And then I went to Switzerland to school, which was a longstanding family tradition. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, my family life uh, was filled with, always filled with really interesting and creative characters coming in and out of, <laughs> uh, in and out of uh, my home. And of course, I had a very bicultural family, my father being in Venezuela, and always I was always going to visit him and living in New York. And like I said, my grandmother, who was living with us, my maternal grandmother was Russian and you know, Swedish, and so uh, very diverse and, and rich, culturally rich upbringing. When did you arrive in New York, and when did you start working uh, in the different projects? How did your professional life evolve once you arrived in New York? Okay, so uh, when I arrived in New York, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was two years old, so I wasn't really having a professional life at the time, but... But I guess my professional life evolved once it began. Uh, I I started my I went I went to Boston College and I actually majored in biology. Believe it or not, in biology. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I you know I I I also studied art history. I was. I mean, I say biology. Wow, Fabiola, because I was so bad at biology. I, I mean. <laughs> Here's the thing. The thing is that I knew that I wanted to go into a creative field. And right. I, I had had a lot of exposure in the creative arts and the creative space my whole life. Uh, my parents my parents were both art collectors. My grandparents, my grandmother, especially on my father's side, was a tremendous patron of the arts and collector and founded a music festival in France. And, and so... I had that covered, and I wanted to take the opportunity to learn about something that was really fascinating to me, but I knew that I wasn't going to pursue as a career, so I studied biology. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a funny thing, but I am very fascinated by science. It, that's absolutely true. Um, so uh, when I left college, I I, work, I began working in fashion. Uh, oh. A small note, during all of my high school years, I went to school in Switzerland, I was in boarding school in Switzerland, so every summer uh, I would intern at the House of Chanel for the couture, the July couture show. So I uh, That was for, amazing. Yeah. That, what yeah, an that experience. Wow. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was an incredible experience, and looking back on it, I realized how much I learned, but at the time, please don't forget that I was an awkward teenager surrounded <laughs> by incredible supermodels <laughs> uh, at the whole time. And, you know, I was maybe, you know, 14, 15, 16, which weren't my best years, I have to say. 
Listen, the, the, who, who, nobody's is, those years are the awful, are awful for all of us. Like, I remember somebody asking me for an interview and they wanted pictures of me growing up, right? So I gave them pictures of me when I'm three to like 11. And then at 11, it stops. And from 11 to 26, there is like a void. <laughs> And then <laughs> there are no pictures. They called my office and they were like, I mean, we're missing a couple of, of years. And I was like, yeah. you are kidding me? Sorry. Sorry. You're never going to see a picture of me when I'm 14 or 15. I mean, you know, my niece and nephew, sometimes they look at the yearbooks and they see my yearbook page and they're like, oh, you don't look yeah. that bad. I don't look that bad. Okay, great. Exactly. So don't forget, I was a, a, as much as I learned, and I really learned so much. I mean, I, I, for another interview, I have incredible anecdotes from that. Right. Right. Uh, but I was an awkward, awkward teenager, and it was it was really difficult on my self esteem. I have to say, because you know, you suddenly are comparing yourself to to, and I hate to use the best of the best because it's so subjective. But, uh, you know, what at that time you, uh, you uh, are being told is the best of the best. Of course. And it's hard. So I mean, it, is. It, was, it, was, it was challenging and incredible and exhilarating and, uh, you know, and a lot. Uh, but I did that. And then I, 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 I left Boston and I started working at Dior. And I worked at Dior for about four or five years. And I did that uh, while John Galliano was there. I speak French and, and English, and so I did a lot of back and forth between Paris and New York. And, and that was unbelievable because, you know, working in particular under John, uh, the man's a genius, right. a creative genius. The man is, you know, has a legacy and a place in fashion history and, and present. And I was there to experience the making of magic. So uh, I can only say that it was it was beyond inspiring. So from a very young age, you were exposed to incredible people. I mean, working for Chanel yeah. during your high school years, then, you know, getting out of college and, and working uh, for Dior under somebody like John Galliano, who's such yeah. a creative person. I mean, you were exposed from an early age to really incredible people and incredible yeah. experiences. And and so that probably has been, you know, kind of the drive for you to then open your business and be prepared to to have the success that you have had. So many well, things. It's interesting because uh, I had, I think I had, a, there was an evolution there and I'll share it with you because I, I, I think maybe other women, uh, people can identify with it. I actually... Being exposed to such titans and true, you know, visionaries, I think created at a young age a fear of failure for me. And right. uh, I, you know, I was really, I, I didn't understand that fear of failure. And, and I'll, I'll give you a personal story. So I, uh, I was in a, a relationship when I was young, in my early, early 20s, I was in a relationship with a, with a man who was, or a boy, I guess we were young. Uh, who was very very controlling, and uh, it, it 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 wasn't a healthy relationship. He was very controlling, and he always wanted to know where I was and what I was doing and how. And it was always a problem if I was with you know friends or this or that, jealous and very controlling. 
and I stayed with him for a decent period of time. Wow. I wasn't particularly happy, but I, uh, I, I was very drawn to the, this life for some reason. And I remember, you know, coming to a place where I really wanted to end the relationship and really just, I remember being alone and thinking about what it was that I, why was I in this relationship and what was going on with me and how could I, you know, let this continue happening. And I, and I, it dawned on me that, you know, I don't know, sometime in my, you know, not very late twenties, but it dawned maybe 24, I would say, um, that I was afraid to fail and that I was in this relationship because uh, he was basically controlling my life. And so I was not responsible for failure. Right. Somebody um, else was in charge. So you were letting that person yeah, make those decisions exactly. for you, which exactly. is very normal and very understanding that you felt that way. And we all have to go through situations like that, whether it's from our personal experiences or professional life is what really makes you. And it's yeah. very nice that you share this because we're always so scared as women to share the situations that are not pretty. Exactly. And, and these are the things that make us, you know, who we are as people. Exactly. exactly. And so that day, that day that I realized, because I, I didn't understand that I was afraid to fail. It was a, it was a, it was a subconscious thing. It really came up to my consciousness that day. I decided that day that failing was going to be better than not trying. Yeah. And that failing was going to be better than having somebody else be in control. And I had to go through it for several years to understand it. And from that day on, I became fearless with respect to failing. And that's really what changed everything. And you know what, when you, when, when somebody sits down with you, I've had, you know, the pleasure of having coffee and meeting you, you can, you can really sense that from you. I mean, you have this attitude, like, you know, whatever happens, it's okay. You know, it doesn't matter. Yes. Does it hurt? Do you, you know, do we cry? Of course we cry, but yeah, of you know, it just doesn't affect us that much or we don't let it affect us as much and I think that's very admirable you know um, it's one of those things that along the way once I realized that I started thinking about these complex kind of things that hold us back and uh, and uh, you know the other thing that I kind of have come to terms with is that if I do something or say something or um, fail at something or do something that's quote unquote stupid or say something that is quote unquote stupid, uh, it doesn't define me. It doesn't mean that I am stupid. It doesn't mean, you know, it just means that I at that time didn't understand that thing. Uh, and so, right. or, you know, it, it's not a definition of, of you and, and the failure doesn't define you. It just means that the, the things that needed to come together in order to succeed didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And it may be because of you, it may be because of a circumstance, but it, in fact, it doesn't define you as a person. Right. You can constantly redefine yourself. And it's a challenge for a lot of women. Um, it's so hard for many women to love themselves as they are. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we have these expectations to be, sometimes I think it's expectations that, I don't know what you think about this, that we put onto ourselves. Oh, sure. 
you know, more than, sure. you know, what society speaks, expects of us in a way. And it's a challenge. I mean, we have Absolutely. to look good or, you know, be the most beautiful. And, and, you know, I always say like in my Instagram, I put a lot of pictures of my looks, but because I enjoy it, but it's not yeah. what defines me. You know, right. what, actually what defines me is the days that I can't wake up or I, my, or nothing works. My hair, my makeup. Mm-hmm. Like last night at a dinner, a woman asked me, I've been following your career. I follow you. Please tell me you wake up and yeah, you just don't know what to wear. I'm like, are you kidding me? I wake up. I don't know what to sure. wear. Uh, I feel my makeup doesn't work. My hair doesn't work. There are days that nothing works. I'm like, mm-hmm. can I get into bed and not get out of my house? And I'm sure that somebody looking at you, I mean, you're beautiful in these social pages, in these amazing parties, um, but you are a human being after all. Oh, and, uh, before all, I would say. Before all, I, w- I am. Before anything else, that's what I am. So, and, yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, your philanthropic work. Well, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I think it's just something I was kind of born with. I, I would, I would say, I remember from a young age being very empathetic, uh, unusually empathetic uh, for the context of my family. It wasn't that anybody in my family was particularly like me. It just, I don't know. It just came with the package, I think. And um, and I've developed it over time, and, and you know the more the more I the more I feel confident in my life and in the things that I'm doing for myself, the more space I have to to give to others. Um, because you know if I'm constantly just thinking about what I need to do for myself because I'm I'm on a treadmill, I, I don't have the the bandwidth. To care for somebody else, right? Um, and so, you know, as I've gotten older and I've been able to balance things a little bit better, I've become more and more involved. And it just, for me, you know, people ask me all the time, "What's your cause? What's your, what's your thing?" And I, I'm really all about. I'm a humanitarian. I mean, I'm really all about human rights, and um, that that is very broad. I understand that, and yet it's very simple. Because, you know, if you look at, you know, the 22, I think it's 22 articles of human rights, uh, they cover kind of all the bases. And so if we could respect those globally, then there is no issue about with LGBTs. There is no mm-hmm. issue with people of different color or different races because we're all humans and we all deserve the same treatment. Uh So it, the, the human rights thing kind of unifies us versus divides us, which I think is so important because we are, you know, uh, genetically 99.9% the same, no -hmm. matter where we go and no matter what we do. And I always think it's kind of like this cosmic joke that humanity can't get over the 0.1% genetic difference that we have. Right. You wrote, uh, you weren't on a trip um, with the International Rescue Committee. Uh, which is a nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. you know, that helps, you know, most of the crisis in the world. Yeah. And uh, you wrote an amazing piece for Vogue. And there's a quote that I read uh, that says, 
Uh, los niños son los que siempre pagan los platos rotos. Children always That's pay right. for the broken plates. That's right. And I thought that was such a powerful statement because in all these crises that we feel they are so foreign to us because we are so comfortable in our day-to-day -day lives with our own problems right. that That's we right. forget that all in all of these situations they're children yep. and how would it matter to us if it would be our kids oh absolutely and and to take it one step further you know they're all our kids to be honest because they're no different than our kids That's the thing I, I, that I have come to realize is, you know, after all my travels and, and I've been to two of the largest refugee camps in the world in Jordan, Zatari and Azra, uh, and after really spending time uh, in places where there are true humanitarian crises, these children are no different than my children. No different at all. They are, it's some ovarian lottery that that my children won that day that they didn't and you know i like to say that all the adults are responsible for all of the children i like to i like to believe that uh, because they're no different than ours they there's nothing about them that, that is less than so you know that's 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 the way i see it So you always you also say there that knowledge is power, and of course, yeah. seeing the situation right in front of you. What do you think? Like when you go back to New York with an experience like that, so powerful, uh, not only of knowledge but of emotions. How, how do you make a difference? What do you do? I mean, the sense of frustration that nobody can see it and therefore feel it must be enormous. The, the, the frustration is enormous. You hit the nail on the head. But the truth is that frustration is, is a futile feeling. So I try to, I try to do things that are productive uh, because otherwise I would drown in futility. Of course. Sure. It's just... You know, so I try to do things that are productive. And, and, you know, I have a certain life. I have a certain lifestyle. We were talking about it before. I love fashion. I, 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 have, uh, I enjoy going to events and having a fun time with my friends and doing things like that. And I don't believe that, that the two are separate. I think that I can leverage a lot of that for the things I care about. I believe that I'm very, very rooted in what I think is right and what I think is right will always come first uh, but I can't also change completely my lifestyle so instead of changing it I try to use everything that I have available and accessible to me to do more of what I think is important and that's truly amazing that you can help in the way that you can and and get involved, which is not very often that people want to do that. I mean, sometimes women ask me, women that are married, that chose to dedicate their full-time, full-time job as moms or wives, and they ask me, hardest what- Hardest job in the world, by the way. Hardest job in the world. But they, the they feel that they have to do more. And sometimes it's like, what should I do? And I always recommend them that they find a passion and that they get involved. And maybe, exactly yeah, maybe it's mm -hmm. two hours a day, maybe it's selling tickets, maybe it's, you know, 
mentoring people or just helping out in a hospital or whatever it is that you, I mean, there's no wrong way of helping out. What would you tell women from your own words? If they are listening to this or even men or whomever it is that that is listening to this and how can they help? Because sometimes people, it's complex for them to find a reason or to find a path to helping out others. I mean, they're they're not wrong in its complexities because the tools are not provided for us very easily. There are so many, uh, I want to say, roadblocks to helping. You don't know if you trust the organization. You don't know right. if the money is going to the right place. You don't know what's happening here. Or you don't understand the situation or the players. Or you know, you think you're giving aid, but it's going into the wrong hands. I mean, nobody is wrong. It is extremely complex and extremely difficult. And I would say that start in your own community. You know, start where you can see a difference. Right. And 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 start where you understand what it is that you're doing and how you're helping. I think that's the most important thing is to have true knowledge about what it is that you're doing. Um because through that comes creative solutions. Through the knowledge that you gain about what it is that you're helping in, whatever it is, you can come up with creative solutions. And, um, yeah, and also sorry. giving out to others can also be done in different ways. Like if you know somebody's Absolutely. sick or you have a friend who's going through a difficult situation, exactly. be patient, uh, exactly. be supportive, don't be judgmental. We judge a lot. Exactly. We tend to be judge, judging each other. And instead, we should be more supportive. And sometimes charity is being a good friend. <laughs> that's exactly what I was saying. You know, of course, of course, you should give if you don't know an organization that you love and trust. And of course, I love and trust the IRC and World Food Program. There are several that I really love and trust. And uh, but but even that might be daunting for some people. And I say, look, look at your own community. Look at what you can do for the the children in your own community. Look at what you can do for the elderly in your own community. Uh, or improving something, something in your community that matters to you that will improve the quality of life of your community. Um, and, and, and that could be very small. It could even be just in your family to doing something nice for, you know, a family member. It's, it's, it's about continuous uh, generosity of spirit, uh, and it doesn't really necessarily have to do with how big the action is. Start right in front of you. Right. Um, tell me something that nobody knows. A simple uh, yes. <laughs> uh, or something that nobody knows. Period. Period. That's hard. <laughs> that's hard. Um, I, hang, I hang upside down every day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I do. I have a, an inversion machine or an inversion table at home, and I. Uh, and I Sorry for my ignorance. Up. What's an inversion table? So it's no, no, you're not ignorant at all. It's just a, a table that you lay down on, and then it, you, you could Google it, and then uh, <laughs> you use your body weight, and it flips you uh, head down. Wow! It, it suspends you, but you're on a table, and suspends you. Your feet are kind of locked into it, and it suspends you. And I do it probably five minutes a day not continuous, sometimes continuous, uh, it really helps with all the like spine pressure from gravity and just like, you know, always being pulled down. 
in, in with gravity, and um, it really helps get you know circulate the blood and do all that fun stuff. So I really enjoy it. I'll I'll see if I'll try it. I'm really bad at that, yeah. but you know it sounds no, like it's yeah great. You know because it just re- relieves the pressure off your neck, your spine, and and uh, your lower back and all that fun stuff, and it gets the blood all the way to your head where you know it needs to be if you want to think a little bit. <laughs> from all the pressures and all the worries of the day many people don't know that you were the the producer of the of the first monday in may and uh, of course that's you know the documentary of the making of the met gala and such an amazing experience i remember seeing your name and i was like wow i mean most people probably don't know that she's from venezuela that she's latina that she you know she's in new york what an amazing career you've had what are the challenges of a woman getting into the movie industry and being a producer and if somebody wants to go into that career how how do they do it If many people don't know that I'm the producer of the first Monday in May, even less people know that I produced the movie before that <laughs> called the Desert Dancer. Right. Uh, and I actually um, got into the film industry, interestingly enough, this all ties together with this kind of fearlessness that we were talking about before. Um, kind of ass backwards, I like to say. Uh, my husband and I have have for a long time been really supporters of, big supporters of um, emerging artists and artists in general. And when we can, now that we can afford it, we often try to support one or two emerging artists with some studio space every every year uh, or a place to work and, and that. And, but at the time, we still had the, we, in theory, we wanted very much to do that, but we just had a couch <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the time. And so I had a, a very good friend who had uh, produced a film, one film before, and wanted to direct a film. And uh, he had come to New York, and then we said he could stay with us for a period of time while he took meetings and such and such. And while he was staying with us, his name is Richard Raymond, uh, he and I stumbled upon this story of a, of a dancer in Iran, and the regime in Iran doesn't allow you to dance, and so, uh, you know, and his plight to, to be in exile in France. And we both looked at each other and thought, wow, that's an incredible movie. So he began the process, and because of lack of funds, I began producing for him. Right. that's what I had to do, because, you know, there was, who else was going to do it? You see, that's the way you helped out. And then it became a career path. Exactly. And I fell in love with, with, with it. I fell in love with every aspect of storytelling. I mean, I had, like I said, I'd always been in the creative field and, I, and I've worked in the arts forever. Uh, but I just fell in love with this, this aspect of storytelling and this aspect of being able to really bring these stories to life. Uh, it, everything from directing to producing. And, and I just loved all of it. And so that's where it began. And I would say to anybody that wants to get into, so I don't have any formal training in, in, uh, in production. I didn't go to school for it. I didn't study it. Uh, and, and believe me, there have been times when I've been in meetings and I've said completely the wrong thing because I just didn't know better. <laughs> believe me. 
but that's okay. the way that you learn. <laughs> that's what I was saying. So it doesn't, it doesn't define me. Yes, it shows my greenness, but it doesn't, it doesn't define me. Uh, and so, you know, you just keep, you just keep at it. And, and then, uh, the, the opportunity to make the first Monday in May came along and I, and I jumped on it, even though I'd only made one other movie, I, I jumped on it for many, many reasons because it's a subject that I know incredibly well and, uh, something that I'm very passionate about. But, but also because when I began uh, kind of my production company, I decided that I wanted to make movies that have uh, cultural impact, social impact, or both. And uh, and for me, uh, the first Monday in May, along with Desert Dancer, they have different types of impact. But, but for me, uh, the first Monday in May has a lot of cultural impact because although it is about the making of, of uh, Met Gala and, and of course, the exhibition itself, which was China Through the Looking Glass, it's truly a portrait of a curator. It's truly the portrait of of a curator. And that's not something that most people would go to see in a movie. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of Trojan horse this, this uh, curatorial uh, biography, if you will, uh, and... Uh, you bring it in to people who typically may not even know what a curator is or understand the process that goes on in a museum. And hopefully along with Rihanna and Justin Bieber and all those things, they also learn about the inner workings of a museum. I mean, I've gotten letters that uh, from people that are like, I, I, I didn't even know I wanted to be a curator. This is what I want to do. And that is why I love making these kinds of movies. That's so inspiring. My motto is, yes, you can. And it goes to a lot of what you have been saying. Uh, you can accomplish everything, all, all of your dreams, if you do it with passion, with dedication, with the right effort. Um, what is your meaning of yes, you can? What does it mean for you? That? Yes. You know, I mean, I think you're right. I think that in particular, and I and I want to put a little asterisk on this, in particular, I think people who have, I mean, circumstances are so different, right? I, like I said, I've been to two of the largest refugee camps in the world. So it's hard to say, yes, you can to those millions of people uh, uh, when, you know, they are undocumented and they, they don't even have a way to move forward in their lives. Uh, and so I would say, yes, you can, in spite of many circumstances and situations, find happiness. Absolutely you can, regardless of everything else, because that's a very internal thing. But I would say that whenever you see an opportunity that presents itself, you basically have the obligation to try it because so many people don't even have that chance. You know what I mean? Yes, totally. When you see this opportunity don't take it for granted and know that because this opportunity is in front of you yes you can achieve it and be grateful for it because not everybody has access to the same thing absolutely and i remember being in fashion shows and you're tired exhausted and you have so much work and then you realize how many people would just 
you know, want to be here in this moment? That's How right. many people are in circumstances that are so difficult? And here I am complaining because I am tired and I'm in a show. <laughs> and why am I complaining? And absolutely, you're absolutely right. We have to be more grateful about everything that comes into our life and learn from the lessons. So exactly. it has truly been amazing talking to you, Fabiola. And you're such an inspiration, such a fearless, amazing woman. Uh, that is, you know, a pleasure to have you in my podcast. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you would choose me to, to <laughs> speak to, and I hope that uh, I hope that somebody listening enjoyed it. Of course. Thank you, Fabiola. Mm-hmm.